Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for survivors and victims of crime sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I am Anna Nassett, and I am the host of this bi-monthly podcast and show. Today, I am very honored and happy to have my friend Keisha Rahm here back on the show to talk about racism, systemic oppression, and white privilege in our state and country. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Anna. It's nice to be back. Um, This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, but also look at our past and our history throughout our state and throughout our country so that we as listeners can begin to mend and heal on our journey and help others as well. Our hope is that this show brings everyone knowledge and know that they are not alone. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing. But with that in mind, we occasionally have sensitive subject matter and I ask that you listen at your own discretion. Today, as I said, we have the incredible Keisha Rahm here on the show. She has served four four terms in the Vermont House of Representatives on behalf of Burlington from 2008 to 2016. She graduated from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in 2018 with a master's in public administration and is currently engaged in policy consulting. She has worked for the city of Burlington as a civic engagement specialist and for the Steps to End Domestic Violence as a legal advocacy director. She also serves on the board of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and Vermont Natural Resources. She's also currently running for state Senate in Chittenden County here in Vermont. Keisha was the first person of color to serve Burlington in the state legislature, the first woman of color to get a double digit percentage of the vote in a statewide race, and would be the youngest and first woman of color to serve the state Senate if elected. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, you know, that's your life. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty amazing introduction. Um, and more than just thanking you just for being here on the show today to discuss racism, systemic oppression, and our white privilege in our state and country. Just thank you for your work, your leadership, the clear voice that you hold in our state and country, and for working on this podcast with me today. Um, I really, really appreciate you being here. Um, And as we do this interview, I think it's really important for me to acknowledge to our listeners that I am white. I grew up with wonderful parents, but despite their best efforts, I grew up with systemic racism and oppression. Um, I work to learn, to listen, and to amplify voices that are not my race. Will I and do I screw up? Yes, of course, we all do. Well, I I will never understand the difficulties and struggles of what it's like to grow up as a person of color here in this country. But with that in mind, I'm here to learn today, to work to do better, and just honestly, I'm deeply humbled that you would come on the show. It is not your duty. It's (laughs) not your obligation to aid white people, but here you are, and I cannot thank you enough. Thank thank you. you. Yes. Um, So let's dive in for our listeners who have not heard or met you before, do you mind sharing a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah, and I, I really appreciate, Anna, that you reflected on, you know, having a family that tried hard to make you a good person and instill a sense of fairness in you, but this stuff runs pretty deep. And 
Um, my mother is a Jewish American white woman uh, who grew up in Chicago and, um, you know, certainly went through her own struggles. I remember hearing that her first boyfriend was black um, and he was a basketball player and he dumped her because he said, you know, her mother, um, his mother wouldn't allow him to date a Jewish person. So, you know, there was, there's a complicated relationship that we all have to race in this country. Um, my father is an Indian immigrant um, who, who was born in the part of India that became Pakistan, came to UCLA for college, met my mother eventually, and um, was told, you know, every day um, to go back to Mexico, it felt like when we were growing up in California. Um, and just yesterday, you know, I'm sorry, my dog has decided this is the moment to squeak her toy in the background. So <laughs> That's okay. Um, but, you know, when um, just yesterday I was talking to my mother and we were talking about George Floyd and the protests and everything happening. I had grown up, I lived through the LA riots. You know, I was arrested myself at 13, which we'll, we'll talk about, I think. And my mother said to me for the first time, I'm just starting to understand that you and your brother who are dark skinned, you know, who looked more Indian um, or ambiguously brown had a really different experience than my mother and my oldest sister who presents very white and Jewish. And um, after 33 years of life, it was the first time my mother really absorbed how different my life was, you know, looking almost exactly like her, but much browner. Um, and so it, you know, even within families, it's hard for people to process. My parents, um, when they were together, ran an Irish pub in LA. And my dad was an Indian guy who went by Mike to run an Irish pub. And, you know, I think I just had a long time to think about these things and how we internalize them, how families struggle through them. Um, and then outwardly from there, how our country grapples with its you know, foundation of uh, being built on racism and the exploitation of brown and black people. Absolutely, thank you for sharing that. And wow, how um, interesting that conversation with your mother yesterday. I mean, I can't imagine how one would feel after that um, <laughs> scene and yet also frustrated and all of those emotions, I'm sure. But I'm really glad you got to have that conversation with her. I think that's, Thank you. that's incredible. Um, so as we dive in, I mean, these are such a huge topics that we could talk about for hours. So we're going to try and start by looking here in our state of Vermont um, and talking about systemic oppression and racism in our state of Vermont with the knowledge that every state has its own state past in this. And I think it would benefit our listeners to be able to hear about our state. And if they're not from here, that they can look into the history of their own state. So exactly. could you share with me about this, um, about, you know, systematic oppression and racism here in Vermont? Yeah, you know, I always feel like you could just go to a conference somewhere and think like, wow, nice food, great hotel. I'm going to go to the local, you know, sort of nightlife drag or whatever it is and miss so much history, miss so much of an opportunity to understand what has transpired in those communities. And there are, you know, really beautiful historic things to remember and deep pain and marginalization and suffering. And, um, you know, here in, uh, in Vermont, we're, we're one of the whitest states in the country, but we still have a past and a history that's worth understanding. And I've really tried to make a um, a lot of effort to understand that. Sorry, I just threw a toy for my dog. Um, and so, you know, you, she's doing this because we're on Zoom. Um, 
So uh, we're going to so take okay. that away. Um, so, um, you know, Vermont has a really interesting history as the 14th state, right? You have your colonies and, um, you know, a, a history of sort of grappling with being the first 13 states and what that meant in the founding of a country. And Vermont was was kind of the outlaw in that sense. They didn't want to be part of New Hampshire. They didn't want to be part of New York. They also didn't really want to be part of the U.S. at first. Um, I have a lot of respect for for Ethan and Ira Allen, um, you know, but you have to sort of look back even deeper than that. Samuel de Champlain, um, you know, who was one of the first white French settlers to come here, um, you know, was really aided in many ways and helped by um, the Abenaki community that was already here, part of the Wabanaki Confederacy that made up the um, the majority of the indigenous folks that were in New England until they, uh, on the other side of Lake Champlain, they run up into the Iroquois Confederacy on the New York side, which a lot of people are more familiar with. Um, you know, Ira and Ethan Allen had a brother who was a slaveholder. Um, one of our first Supreme Court justices in Vermont had slaves. And there are a lot of accounts of um, you know, black folks who made it up to Northern New England for safety, you know, to get away from as fugitive slaves to get away from oppression that was very overt in the South and would reflect that they still felt like people threw the N-word around a lot up in Northern New England, that they could get a foothold in the economy, you know, get a little bit of a, of a, um, of an income, but had no ability for upward, um, you know, any kind of upward movement in their, in, in their career path or their income. Um, and, you know, we have a really interesting history here in Vermont with Quakers who I think it can be really beautiful and painful if you think about it. Um, we were one of the last stops on the Underground Railroad and um, you had a lot of uh, black folks who would come end up at the Rokeby Farm, um, which is a Quaker owned farm that's just south of Burlington. And Quakers don't believe that you can, um, that you can own a person, obviously as we all shouldn't, but it was very much part of their religious beliefs at the time. Um, so they didn't believe that you could hold ownership over somebody or that meant you couldn't buy their freedom. So what they would do is, um, you know, they would have uh, black folks who were fugitive slaves and their families work on the farm um, in merino wool and, um, and then pay off their own, um, their own debt, the, the cost of their life to the, the um, slaveholders in the South. And um, many of them would go on, here she is, my dog, who's like really miserable that I'm talking to someone on the internet. Um, <laughs> Hi, so, sweetie. <laughs> yeah, I just, what would we do without dogs? Um, and um, so they would, um, you know, help, help uh, black folks buy their own freedom. And I've, I've gone to some of the schools in the area to talk to the young people about, you know, um, they were some of the first in the country to say black lives matter. Black lives matter as much as my life. You know, this life is not worth money. You know, no life is, it's not worth less than mine. Um, this life has value in, intrinsically in and of itself. And so that created a complicated situation where they couldn't help them pay for their freedom, but they would pay them as, you know, um, free beings and help them pay, pay for their freedom. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, so so we have this really interesting backstory. And then if you ask a lot of Vermonters today, they'll say, well, we, we were the first to outlaw slavery. We were a state of abolitionists. We really didn't believe in slave ownership in, in any major way. 
Um, but they kind of stop there, right? And then you still have to wonder why are we such a white state? Um, what happened to the other folks who were here who, who might not have been black, but have other histories? Um, you know, the, uh, the University of Vermont and many parts of the elite uh, ruling class of the early turn of the 20th century, um, they were really big academic leaders in the eugenics movement. Um, and many people aren't even that familiar with the eugenics movement of the early 20th century where um, it was determined that people who were indigent had some kind of mental defect and were often people who were just judged because they were poor and or people of color um, were forced into sterilization. So majority, two, two thirds of the people sterilized were women. Um, and a lot of the people sterilized in Vermont were Abenaki. Um, and you know that they didn't release the records on that forced sterilization until the 60s and 70s when there was a court case about it. And there's still a lot of silence around the issue. There is now just recently been a law to teach about the eugenics movement in schools um, and really to acknowledge that, you know, Vermont didn't necessarily sterilize more people than other states there, you know, this was around the country, it was rampant, but um, Vermont and UVM were, were definitely the academic center of the argument that there was inf inferior people that needed to be sterilized for the social good. Um, and their, you know, their uh, findings and their academic research was cited by Nazis, you know, and by Hitler. So, you know, we had this really dark history in, um, in determining that there's a superior race, that there is such thing as white supremacy. And it's something that if we don't really rid ourselves of it is continues to, to create a toxic environment for people of color today in Vermont. Wow. Um, I will say that I'm embarrassed that I just learned a lot that I didn't know about my state and about my history um, of yeah. this place. So thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I would encourage everyone to look into their state's history and really learn because um, that's definitely something I'm going to be challenged to do deeper. And I think it does <coughs> it does speak to, you know, I mean, like we said, like we're a very white state, so we can be like, oh, it doesn't happen here. We're not nice. a racist place. And I know I was taking a course through the Vermont Victims Assistance Academy and and we were talking about systematic oppression. And there was this, you know, task or you know, they're like, these are all different crimes that have happened against people of color. What state did they happen in? And everyone's mm -hmm. like, Oh, must have been the South. Oh, it must have been here. And every single one of them was here in Vermont. Exactly. And um yeah, it was, it, it shouldn't have been surprising. It shouldn't have been shocking to us, but yeah, we just, we have to keep being aware that this is happening here in our state as well as in the country. Mm -hmm. And it helps us, you know, make the argument if we really want to be true allies, you can't just wag your finger at people in the South. Um, you can't just celebrate that they're taking down a, a, you know, civil war statue to a Confederate general. Um, we still have buildings and children's book awards and things that have been named for eugenicists until very recently that we're just starting to have that reckoning. Um, and so, you know, we can't sort of throw those stones until we, um, until we clean up our own house. And, you know, we're still very much in the process of doing that. Absolutely. Um, could you recommend anything for people to read books, videos, documentaries, speakers, um, you know, here in our state, but also nationally as well for people yeah. to learn more about their history and Absolutely. how they can start to work towards I'll better. I'll name two, two books um, 
that are unique to Vermont that I think tell some of our history. One is Breeding Better Vermonters by Nancy Gallagher. Um, and uh, Breeding Better Vermonters really broke the silence on the, the history of eugenics here. Um, it's a really critical book, I think, for a lot of people to understand a, a very deep wrong that we have yet and will be, never be able to make right. Um, Stranger in the Kingdom is a book about a very famous case of you know, the early settlement of one black man in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont um, and how he was wrongly accused of, of a murder um, of a young woman. And uh, you know, he was the, I, I believe the pastor um, who had gone to, you know, sort of diversify the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Um, I don't wanna say that the Northeast Kingdom is in some way backwards compared to the rest of the state. This is certainly the experience people have around the state, but it was a really early historical account. Um, it's kind of historical fiction about um, a pastor who, you know, almost lost his freedoms and his life being wrongly accused for a murder um, and how deeply ingrained it is in all of our states and including Vermont that, you know, it's really easy to blame a black man for um, any particular crime, but particularly involving a white woman. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah. That is great to know. And as we're talking, if there's any other resources that you want to offer up, I'll keep a list and I can provide those for our listeners. Afterwards. Yeah, there's so many that that's just yeah. in our state. And there's like too many to count um, that are, you know, wonderfully written to help people expand their consciousness around race in general in the country. Um, I have my copy of White Fragility that was mailed to me for a board that I'm on, the Vermont Natural Resources Council board. And I feel like it's a really good starting place for a lot of white folks um, because it's written by, you know, a, a white woman who grew up low income, um, you know, who I think can really speak to what white privilege is um, from a, a very knowledgeable perspective. And, and that is where I think as people of color, we're always looking for for white folks to come help be the messenger. You know, it's it's hard for us to always be the messenger because it will never land the same way as someone saying, you know, hey, I get it. I know that you're hurting in these other ways, but you know, the color of your skin is not something that's holding you back right now or making your life more difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, let's dive a little bit more into white privilege and, and uh, fragility. Um, it's always been a part of our country's history but almost always unacknowledged. It's ignored. Mm -hmm. We like to say, oh, no, no, that's not part of me, but it really is for every single white person. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about your view and definition of white privilege and how you see mm -hmm. the gap between white people and people of color growing? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's easy, especially I think on a show like this and you know, in the context of, of who, might be in your audience, you know, I've been on boards or in conversations where I just say, just, you know, just imagine how you feel because it's happening right now and it's very triggering, or you would feel if it were to happen that the majority or the, like all of the people around you talking about are things equal, are they fair, we're all men, you know, and you're the only woman at the table and, you know, they're saying, oh yeah, no, you know, women are fine, like trust us. And, you know, I'm constantly in spaces on boards or in, in halls of power where people are saying, oh no, we're doing a great job on that, but they have no way to verify that if they, they don't have the lived experience. Um, and so, you know, and that's even if, it, if their consciousness is raised about caring if they're doing a good job or not on acknowledging and supporting people of color. Um, 
in, in many ways, you know, what white privilege means is the ability to just not think at all about your race. It doesn't, um, you know, contribute to your survival or your economic well-being or the ways that you have to navigate the world, um, you know, in order to be considered successful or professional. Um, and it's also being part of a culture that was designed for you, you know, that you can really know and value success. Um, and so I really love, for example, Jeffrey Canada, who started the Harlem Children's Zone, um, you know, which is a project to really, it was really meant to support um, young black kids in Harlem who weren't getting a proper education, weren't college ready. You know, he'd go door to door and talk to their mothers and say, I'm not telling you, you haven't been successful because you've survived a lot. You're working multiple jobs. You're, you're, you know, you're surviving a country that wasn't made for you. But I'm telling you that I want to help your kid be successful in the way that white middle-class people just simply don't think about having 50 or more books on the shelves, talking about college at a young age, you know, being prepared for success and knowing what professionalism in the workplace looks like in our context in this country. So, you know, just being ready to um, be successful and then still, no matter what, you have new research coming out, Raj Chetty and other economists saying that even if a, you know, a black family rises to the upper middle class or, or upper class, um, they are far more in danger of their kids losing that wealth. So the wealth gap in this country isn't just what well, didn't just start out vast, right? Because a lot of wealth was exploited from from black and brown folks. Um, many people don't know about, you know, the um, the Tulsa massacre that burned Black Wall Street to the ground um, in the 20s. Um, the ways that it, when black people tried to create self-sufficiency, they were policed and controlled. Um, but even if they do rise to that level of, of obtaining wealth, um, it's, it's they can so quickly lose it. You know, they can be, um, you know, it, it can it can fall apart for them. Arrests, being much more scrutinized, losing jobs, losing homes, losing wealth. Um, so the American dream has just always been very fragile for particularly Black Americans, um, but for a lot of people of color, you know, in comparison to white folks. And so you have situations like, you know, a 30-year difference in life expectancy between Black and white folks in Boston, just three T-stops away. Um, and that kind of thing, you know, affects people's health, well-being, the education of their children, and their ability to get ahead, and has created a cycle that's extended well beyond the end of slavery. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, it's so true. Like, the society was created for me to succeed, and that's, right. it's such a shame. And I, yeah, I mean, especially right now as we're in the time of COVID-19, looking at the statistical data of people of color dying at such a huge rate as compared to white people, it's, it's, yeah, it shouldn't be shocking, but once again, it was. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are people who've been trying to tease that apart from the beginning of the pandemic and who knew this was coming, you know, and, and. I, I've said recently that, you know, understanding the insidious nature of racism sometimes feels like you're an epidemiologist or a public health expert saying, hey, we can predict that these people are going to get treated differently in the healthcare system, that they're more vulnerable because of the housing they live in and the air they breathe, that they work much, they're much more likely to work in jobs where they're exposed to the threat and to the virus. And so all of these things mean we have to work harder and we have to change what we do for folks of color. And lo and behold, even in Vermont right now, we have surges 
um, among new American communities in Burlington and Winooski after the real danger has passed for most of the rest of the state because, you know, because economic well-being is healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. And because not having information in your own language or grocery drops that have food that's relevant to your community will force you to make decisions to help your family survive that, you know, we're trying to have people avoid. And so you have to, you know, we're, I hate to be able to predict that, you know, for some folks, they're not getting the response that they need in a culturally relevant way. And they're going to have, you know, a higher rate of, um, you know, of infection and possibly surges that we're seeing after the fact. And as some folks may or may not know, um, right now, you know, uh, black Vermonters are twice as likely to, the rate of infection is, is uh, twice that of white Vermonters. Um, so, wow. the, you know, these numbers are panning out to be just as devastating as they are around the country. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't matter that we have, you know, some of the fewest cases in our state as compared to the country, the numbers are still there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Um, thank you for speaking to that. You are, you know, you're a public servant here in our state and being, you know, one of very few people of color serving in that role. I know that you, I mean, I'm guessing you must get, people turn to you a lot for the answers and probably are committing microaggressions and everything under the sun. Um, and, you know, would you mind speaking a little bit about like, or if you have a story that could kind of bring home what your experience is, um, just your daily experience? Yeah, well, and I would say there, I, you know, sometimes it's hard to frame it the right way as this kind of, the, the thing I experienced the most is a good problem to have, which is, which is kind of being killed with kindness, you know, that people want to know you, want to make you feel welcome, want to feel like a good person, want you to know how much they welcome you here. Um, and so they kind of go out of their way to make you feel more welcome or include you in things. Um, it can get a little bit exhausting and it includes well-meaning questions like, but where are you really from, you know, and what's your real background, um, you know, and questions that will always sort of, um, in, in my mind, be mixed with the experience of having very painful experiences online of people saying, go back to California, go back to India, go back to where you came from, go somewhere else. Um, you know, on the very well-meaning side of that, it's people who wanna know you and know where you're really from and don't ever let you feel like you can just be an, a Vermonter just like they are. And on the other side of that are people who desperately don't want you to feel welcome and um, you know, no matter if other legislators who are white are from Connecticut or New York or Massachusetts, they don't ever hear go back to those states. Um, you know, it's Kaya Morris, you know, the black woman in Bennington who um, resigned because of racial harassment, who always heard go back to Chicago. It's me here and go back to Los Angeles. Um, you know, people, uh, it's an easy trope to, to use against people of color. It happens to me a lot here. But more than anything, honestly, the good news is that I've had a lot of folks um, you know, just try to make me feel as welcome as possible, but it also makes you feel like you stand out. And, you know, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who's running, who identifies as a trans woman. Like we all want to do the thing that, that Danica Rome did, um, you know, who's a trans woman in Virginia who became a legislator and say, yes, I am a person of color. Or I'm a trans woman and I care about transportation and healthcare. And, you know, you, mm -hmm. but you also are someone who has to speak for a group of people who get left behind. In those in those issues a lot 
And, you know, so yeah, when I was a young 22 year old woman of color in the legislature, no one thought I was a legislator. You know, I had colleagues who saw it firsthand and had to advocate, no, she gets to be in the legislative lounge. She gets a legislative ID card. You have to treat her like a legislator because otherwise it was really hard to tease apart every day. Do they think I'm not meant to be here because I'm young or a person of color or a woman? Probably all three. Right. Um, you know, so, so, and then the, the hard part is, and I try to explain this a lot to folks, um, white folks who might feel like someone's overreacting toward them if they make a innocent comment or they ask an innocent question. That might be the 10th or 11th time that day that someone's done something like that to you. And another time it might've felt really malicious or insidious and you didn't say something and you end up taking it out on somebody else, you know, and it's, it's hard to always manage that and control that because so much is coming at you every day. Um, and I imagine sometimes, you know, that's, I don't know the experience of being a white presenting woman, but you know, as a white presenting woman at a job where, where the eighth person says, oh, you know, hey girls or hey ladies to you or, you know, comments on your clothes, you just, it just starts to get under your skin. And the same thing happens when you're a person of color and people keep questioning where you're from, you know, what you bring to the table, um, that you're not really a Vermonter, you know, those kinds of things start to wear you down every day. Absolutely. Um, I know that you and I talked a little bit about anger and like, I mean, that's what happens when you get asked that thing in six, seven times a day, like you start to get angry and eventually you want to snap. Um, yeah, and you and I were conversating, you said to me something like, how you, you know, you have this anger for how you're being treated every day as you face these microaggressions, yet you're not allowed to react to them because if you do, you won't be taken seriously. You'll be called an angry person. And, you know, it really made me think about an experience in my life where like, I don't think I've ever been so angry for like a day and a half, but never had to be as professional. And mm -hmm. it was when I, it was when I was at trial last year and I had yeah. to testify yeah. And like, I've never been so angry and I've never had to be so professional. Mm -hmm. And so when you, we were talking about that, it really struck me. And I just thought like, I can't imagine having that be a daily existence. Mm -hmm. I yeah. can barely do it for eight hours. So can you speak a little bit about anger and just feeling unheard and how you move through that in this public civil servant place that you're in? Yeah, you know, and I, I do think that it is a fair comparison. You know, I can't speak from all kinds of personal experiences fully, but when I look at some of the intersections in my life, um, I think it is fair to say that the same kinds of um, triggers that a survivor of domestic or sexual violence might feel that other people have no idea are happening for them. You know, it, it's like a siren going off in your head. It's a blaring trigger and it, it hurts. And most people are not picking up on it at all, um, you know? And so when that happens to a, a survivor, a victim of, of violence, um, you know, it made me realize recently that having been arrested at the age of 13 and, you know, having the officers brag about getting overtime when they picked up three young brown women at, you know, 8.45 and said it was a curfew violation and then asked us our race and asked us if we were Mexican and then said, okay, fine, we're just gonna put you as other because that helps us with our overtime. Um, someone said to me, oh, you had PTSD from that experience. You know, you are, you have a constant trigger. It's a trigger that's made it hard to engage with police. You know, it's an instant feeling 
that you might have a car accident if you see a police officer, if you see someone in uniform. I, I did almost every day in the state house. And, you know, I had to get over that initial fear to work with them and to, you know, do, do good work on behalf of victims of domestic violence or in racial bias in policing. But there's that instant fear of somebody um, you know, that, that I did not realize was such a deep trigger from being 13 years old and, and being arrested and treated that way. Um, that in some ways that kind of PTSD is something only, only other survivors of violence and trauma can understand. Um, so, you know, yeah, it just, it runs really deep and it means that, you know, you don't know if you're going to snap at your partner um, you know, at a mentor, at someone who's particularly well-meaning or somebody who, you know, really does come at you with malice. You, you just might get into that fight or flight feeling of, you know, um, someone is trying to take away my freedom and my ability to move freely in the world. And um, not everyone can sort of understand that maybe until this pandemic. And I've talked to some folks I know who've spent time in prison and in solitary confinement and you know, this has been a really triggering time for people, just like probably survivors of, of domestic violence, where feeling like you, someone else is controlling your movement can be an incredibly, um, just an incredibly frightening feeling that goes beyond sort of normal, how no, people are normally reacting to something so, so dramatic as, as quarantine. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, to, to kind of follow, like, how do you, how do you, how are you able to manage to, to, to tamp that anger down or um, to not have it come up? I mean, what are some things that you do just in your own personal life to bring yourself healing and release and space um, from that? Yeah. You know, like my two closest friends in Burlington are a, you know, a, a gay Bengali guy who was raised, you know, Muslim in North Dakota <laughs> and a friend of mine who's, you know, half white German, half black and grew up a military brat in Alaska and Georgia. And here I am this, you know, um, half, half Jewish, half Indian person who grew up in an Irish pub in LA. Like there, it's such a unique experience. I would never claim I could speak for the black experience. I've been, I've been mistaken for a lot of things, but you know, um, I have a lot of privilege because of the color of my skin and, and a lot of the ways I present, but having friends who understand what it's like to constantly be in that ambiguous space of, you know, people are looking at you to try to understand what you are, you know, people are telling you to go back to your country, they don't know what country that is, you know, nobody does, um, you know, those are experiences that sometimes you need people around you who understand it without you having to say a word. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, you know, there's just a lot to say about a lot to be said for another book, um, you know, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Bev Dr. Beverly Tatum um, was a great book to read about, you know, forced assimilation can feel just as violent as forced segregation. Being told this is having to, you know, here, this is this white way of being is the best way to be successful in life can feel really oppre oppressive. Um, and so, you know, I grew up somewhere where I was fortunate to have my own identity affirmed where I could be, I could code switch a lot and be in a very diverse environment where I never really had to think about my race as much as those few moments like being arrested and things like that. But moving to Vermont, you know, you're constantly, um, you're constantly thinking about how people are perceiving you, um, what they're thinking about you, where they think you're from, if they think you're a citizen or not. Um, and that those kinds of mental gymnastics of what, like what is a person perceiving right now 
for your own survival, um, it, it can get really exhausting. So I just find the people who, who know what that's like. And I also, um, I still love to, to reach across difference and make those connections. And I think there's so many ways in which um, we can understand our shared experiences and, and start from there. Um, so, you know, I, I just, it's in my blood, like as a Hindu, you know, <laughs> to, to find what is common and, and to build um, a path forward from there. And so I do find a lot of um, just inspiration in being able to have these conversations with folks in Vermont. And, and frankly, people are so willing to listen most of the time. And I just really appreciate that. I love it. And I'm loving sitting here listening to you today. It's <laughs> really just such an honor. And I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about doing the show is getting to sit and listen and learn and amplify. Um, <laughs> So we're going to end this episode now and we're going to come back. This is a two-parter. My wow, first two-parter. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to end this episode and come back with our second part uh, where we're going to talk more about all of these issues and get a little bit more into police. And just, um, yeah, I just wanted to give this as much time as we needed and we need lots of time. So <laughs> thank you everyone for listening. Um, we'll be back with another episode. If you'd like to learn more about Keisha's work, you can go to her website or, or KeishaRam.com. K-E-S-H-A-R-A-M.com. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back with our next episode of The Mend. Thank you. Stay tuned.